I'm Anne. And I'm Josh B. And today we have a very special guest with us. And her name is Miss Muscatel. You're great. So she has a daughter and her daughter actually had um, eight heart surgeries. So today she's going to like tell us about her experience with that. Um, but before we start, just make sure you subscribe to our podcast on all platforms and make sure that um, you follow our Instagram because that's how we're going to be able to interact with you guys. And with that out of the way, let's get on with the interview. I know that you have your own like podcast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? And maybe we can like link it in our bio too. Yeah, absolutely. So our podcast is called That's the Hashtag Truth. And we have conversations with people about things that they've overcome, real stories. We get real honest and we kind of jump right to the bottom line. So, yeah. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Do you interview like people from like all sorts of fields or is it like, yes. Like, oh, wow. Yep. We interview anyone that wants to share their story. We believe that everybody has a story and all those stories are valuable. And we feel just so strongly that we have more in common than we do different. And if we could all just listen and learn from one another's stories, then the world would be a much kinder, empathetic place. Yeah, I, love that. I think that's like a really great mission. Oh, thank you. Okay, now, could you like maybe tell us a little bit about like your daughter's disorder and kind of like like the background about that? Absolutely. So my daughter was born 27 years ago. And in the time that she was born, there really wasn't a lot in terms of treatment available for her type of condition. And so throughout her life, we've been sort of on the cusp of cutting edge technology over the years. And that has been quite the experience. She was born with a condition called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, which basically means that half of her heart really didn't develop. And so her left ventricle barely existed. Her pulmonary arteries were very small and pinched. Her aorta, her aorta also had what's called two different coarctations in it, which means there was a narrowing. So it kind of acted like a pinch in a hose and the blood couldn't flow freely through it. Her valves were very abnormal. She had a double orifice mitral valve, which is a valve that had an extra opening on one end. And it was also very narrow. And her tricuspid valve had a cleft in one of the leaflets and her aortic valve had some, some problems with that as well. On top of that, in between the two chambers of the heart, you have your upper chambers, the atria, and your bottom chambers, the ventricles. There were holes in both the upper and lower chambers of her heart. And so her heart condition was very, very complex. And in that time frame, like I said, before technology, our ultrasound didn't pick up on the diagnosis. And so we were sent home with what we believed was a very healthy baby but she didn't seem healthy and things started to kind of go downhill for her. And I would have her back and forth to the doctors several times. And then um, at four and a half months old, which is actually really a miracle that she survived that long without intervention, we found out about her heart condition and she was rushed in for surgery. And the doctors told us she's not going to have to have one surgery, but she'll need three. And so 
in the surgical process for kids who have her condition, they do that in stages. The first stage is usually done in what's either called the Norway, a Norwood procedure or a Daniski Stanzel procedure. And what they do is actually literally reroute the entire heart. So they connect the pulmonary artery to the aorta so that you have one chamber pumping blood to the body as opposed, you have two, one, two chambers tied together to pump blood to the entire body instead of just half the heart doing it. And then you might be thinking in your mind, well, how did she get oxygen if they moved her pulmonary artery? They connect a shunt to the lungs that's called um, the Blaylock-Tossig shunt. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that or not. There's yes. a really great movie. It's called Something the Lord Made. And it's about the story of Vivian Thomas, who actually created that shunt. He was an African-American brilliant guy. And he developed this shunt under the supervision of another doctor. But unfortunately, and sadly, because of the um, time frame that he was in, he didn't get credit for that. And so this movie has been made to sort of recognize and honor that, but that shunt saved my daughter's life. And so um, we love, we love the story behind that. Um, and so she has that first procedure, there were a lot of different complications that went along with that, because as you can imagine, they're rerouting an entire circulatory system. And so outside of connecting those two, those two arteries together, they completely excise the atrial septum, which allows the blood to mix. And so when I would bring my, when I brought my baby home from the hospital after those procedures, she didn't have an oxygen saturation of a hundred, you know, like you or I might have her oxygen saturations ran about 65 or 75 all the time. And so she was a blue baby, um, but that was intended. And so usually for these kiddos, they have, like I said, a staged procedure. They go back in for the next phase with the ultimate goal of making the heart only be a passive pump to allow blood to flow through the body. So the normally in a heart, you have a superior vena cava, which brings blood back to your heart from the upper half of your body. And you have the inferior vena cava, which brings blood to back to your heart from the lower half of your body. So in stage two, what they planned to do was remove, or I guess change the placement of the superior vena cava so it also connected to the pulmonary artery and the aorta. So now you have three chain, three vessels coming together to pump blood, but instead of the blood going in through the heart, it's going around it. So it's pretty like ingenious what they what they could do. And then stage three would be to bring in the inferior vena cava. But for my daughter, that wasn't an option. She had too many risk factors or a number of other complications that just would have caused that surgery to fail. And transplant really wasn't an option. She had reactive airway disease as well as other things that would have made transplant a bad, a bad choice. And honestly, with transplant, it's not necessarily an easy cure or fix either. It comes with its own challenges. And so 
she did have her Glenn procedure. That was surgery number two. And she, it was actually surgery number three for her because her first surgery did have a failing point and she had to get rushed back in and brought back out. But, um, but it didn't change the course of what they were doing in terms of treatment protocol. So she had her, her technically fourth procedure when she was four years old, in which case they corrected a couple of issues with her valves. And then we were at a standstill because what we were told over and over again was take her home and enjoy the time you have with her because there's really not anything more we can do, but, you know, we're just going to have to watch and see, and we'll keep presenting her to Boston Children's Hospital. That was our, our specialty hospital, which was our saving grace. And so we went home and we waited, we waited for options. So we waited for medical advancements to catch up and then they did. And so when Faith was in second grade, her surgeon said, you know, this really hasn't been done before, but her left ventricle has grown. And I think that if we take down everything we've ever done and put it back where it goes, she'll be okay. She'll be able to sustain life and her heart will be healthier. In fact, she'll probably be better than she was before. And so we went with that decision and it was scary, (laughs) you know, as you can imagine, you know, it's not, it's not been done before. It's a huge surgery. And what had happened in, you know, a few stages before was now going to be taken down all at once. And so the surgery was a success. It wasn't easy. There were a lot of complications, but it was a complete success. And then Um, but it still didn't address, it addressed the circulatory issues, but it still didn't address her valve issues. And in our time, because again, she's 27. (laughs) So in our time, there weren't a lot of mechanical valve options and they really didn't want to put them in young babies because they don't grow with a child. And so they really wanted her to keep her own valves until she was at least full grown so that they could replace them with something that would be a little bit more permanent. And so she did have to have another surgery in her eighth grade um, middle school year because there was some muscle tissue that had built up below her aorta and they had to remove that. And then she had a valve replacement after her four days after she graduated high school, if you can imagine that. And then six weeks later, one of the valves they worked on did dehiss, the stitching came apart and she had to go back in and have another one. But you girls will appreciate this because you're ambitious girls. Three weeks after that, she started college her freshman year, just as if she never missed a beat. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. That sounds like so much. Like, I know you guys definitely had to, like, stay strong through all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay, so I know you covered a lot. And honestly, me and Josh, we were not really, we don't, we're not that knowledgeable on cardiovascular health as much. So um, you were talking about the disease and you were talking about um, all the different problems in the heart. But then you stated that later her left valve started, left valve, was that correct? Started Her left ventricle ventricle sorry yeah her left ventricle started growing is that something normal in the disease or was that something unexpected 
it was a little bit unexpected. And I think some of the things that caused that to happen was, so in the heart, you have four chambers. You have your top two chambers, which are the atria, and you have your bottom two chambers, which are the ventricles. And the bottom left chamber is considered the most powerful chamber of the heart normally. And it is the one that pumps blood out the aorta into your entire body. And so with that being really small, I mean, her heart was failing every day, you know, it just couldn't do the job that it was set out to do. But because you have this, what they call it's an unbalanced AV canal, an atrioventricular canal, normally you would have four chambers and they're all kind of balanced with each other. If you think of equal pressure on both sides, that would be a good, healthy operating heart. But because she didn't have equal pressure, then nothing's balanced. But because there were other problems in her heart, it caused abnormal pressures in the right places. That was an unexpected thing. And so this abnormal pressure came into her left ventricle and caused it to stretch and grow. So, yeah. I mean, ended up working out for you guys. (laughs) Yes, it did. And so, and that's something that, you know, they didn't now, there's a lot of, that's the great thing about medical technology. It advances every single day. And now, you know, there's so many things they do to protect these children when they're having heart surgery. They've now developed valves that they can put in while a child's very small, even an infant. And they just go in, I say just, but they go in through the calf lap, which is not through an open chest. It's through a vein in the leg and they can go in and they can open up these valves bigger and bigger as the child grows. So they don't have to keep having repeated surgeries for valves. The, um, her surgeon actually developed something called the Del Nido solution and they protect the heart with that while they do surgery and it keeps the cell the cells healthy and helps prevent some of that heart failure and muscle damage that kids would maybe have during surgery. You know, she's had eight surgeries, but her myocardium, her muscle doesn't realize that it's, it's strong and beats, you know, the, it beats really strong. So. Yeah. Um, sorry. What was like the disease you said your daughter had? Yep. It's hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Okay. So um, hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Is it something that, that like runs in your family or was it like completely unexpected? Completely unexpected. Um, there's no heart disease. That's a, I'm, I think there's acquired heart disease in our family, you know, from poor diet or that sort of thing. But as far as a congenital heart defect that somebody was born with, we don't have anybody in our family that has that. Um, there's been a lot of different studies. There's a couple of gene points that are responsible for some of those diagnoses, but sometimes it's just a complete fluke, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly what it was caused by. Like, was it some sort of mutation from birth or? No, they don't know. Um, there's a cut, like there's a couple of genes that can be responsible for it, but that's not always the case. So it's hard to say. Yep. Wow. But the thing is, is that with CHD, congenital heart disease, over 40,000 children are born in the, in the U S alone every year with CHD. And so that's one in 100 children will be born with a congenital heart disease. 
the numbers are actually very large. And while it is the most common defect, it's actually also the least funded and the least that people are aware of. Yeah, yeah. whenever I think of um, cardiovascular disease, I definitely like, like my mind always goes to like heart failure and like heart attacks and stuff like that. But I didn't like, I never expected that like, like it could be, you could get it like from the beginning. I didn't either. You know, when my daughter was born, I didn't really know anybody else in our area who had CHD and yeah. the kids who had critical CHD, like she did, a lot of them didn't make it, you know, mm -hmm. and it was very hard to find hopeful stories out there when she was born, because usually what you would read was maybe the child lived till two, or maybe the child lived till three, but that's not the case anymore. These kids are living long and and vibrant lives because of medical technology and just the advancements that have been made. Yeah. Um, and then also when in the beginning you told us that like your, your daughter had a lot of problems, right? Like, is it always to that extent with other kids with CHD or was it just like something that like special to your daughter? So I think that the numbers are so she has what's considered complex CHD or a critical CHD. And I believe that when you look at the numbers of one and 100, you can look it up. So quote <laughs> me a hundred percent, but I believe that it's 25% of those are critical cases like my daughter's. The disease is called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, correct? Yeah. So I'm trying to like put it in terms of the name to its like disorder. So when it says hypoplastic, like how exactly does that show in the heart, if that makes sense? So hypo meaning, um, if this is what you're asking, if it's not, definitely feel free to ask again. So hypo meaning less than, smaller than, like if somebody had hypothyroidism, it would be underactive, right? Mm -hmm. So, or hyper would be more than. And so hypo is underdeveloped. So that left ventricle hypoplastic is referring to the left heart being completely underdeveloped. I see. If, well, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah that was basically my question. And yeah. sorry to make you repeat so much information. I'm just trying to understand this holistically, but. Oh, no, absolutely. You said that you were, <laughs> you were like describing a lot of different parts in the heart that your daughter was born with like problems in. Could you kind of like restate those and um, just show how like each of those problems related to like a specific function being depleted or something like that, if that makes sense? Yeah, definitely. So with the left ventricle, um, like we talked about a little bit with that not working properly and barely being big enough to pump blood, then that really keeps your body from receiving enough blood, you know, your um, left chamber is responsible for pumping blood to your entire body, including your organs. And so when that blood's not going forward, it's going backwards. It's building up somewhere else in the heart because some other place might have enough room. The rest of the chambers had enough room, but all that blood has to go somewhere. And so if it's not going out, it's going back. Now, where it goes back to depends on the part of the heart that's affected. And so with her pulmonary arteries being small and pinched, then that's blood going to and from the lungs. And so that's not, that's affecting her circulation as well as her ability to get oxygen. And then with her mitral valve not being normal, then that's, that's the blood that's going into that left ventricle. And so 
that's getting backed up. So everything what's happening is it's just getting congested all over the place. And so you've probably heard the term congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. And what that means is your heart's failing to pump blood somewhere. And so the congestion, just like if you have a cold in a sense, not, I mean, not to simplify it, but is getting backed up someplace else. So when the mitral valve's not working well, a lot of that congestion comes back around the lungs. And so the lungs begin to pool with fluid. And if they pool with fluid long enough, then those lungs build up muscles around the little, uh, the, the pulmonary bed, and it creates like a pulmonary hypertension. And um, that can be problematic. And blood can also back up into the liver. And then the liver becomes very enlarged and very congested. Normally, when, if you were to poke, so to speak, um, underneath your rib cage, you may feel the very edge of your liver, but you probably won't feel much of it when somebody has congestive heart failure and it is going backwards into the liver, it will, um, make the liver will be very large and you can, you can feel it. So, mm-hmm. I know you said that like one of the procedures that your daughter went through was kind of was like new. So like what types of things did you think about before before taking on this procedure? And is this like the most risky procedure that you had to go through? Risk is hard to assess when it comes to CHD, especially back then, because everything was really kind of brand new. Some of the things had been done before. Some of the things weren't. And the best that you can do in any situation is to look at all the, all the facts, all the information, and then pick a best option because the alternative is she doesn't receive it. She dies. And so you have to take that risk. And as a parent, you're faced with this decision of what if I do the procedure, you, you, and something happens. And so you have to risk your baby's life to save it. And yeah. And so there's not really like an easy, um, way to look at any of the procedures she had because they were all so complex that, you know, if she had, and I, I, I don't want to minimize it because if somebody even just had not just, but has a hole in the heart, it is a much simpler procedure. And the odds of survival are like 99.97% or something really, really high. They're very good odds of survival and a, a curative sort of outcome. But for Faith, her procedures were always 50-50. They were going to work or they weren't. And so you had to just you know, in a sense, go with where the information takes you. For us, our faith, our faith played a role. So we definitely prayed as part of that decision-making process. And then also you've got to kind of go with your gut and it stinks (laughs) for lack of a better way to put it, but you don't have a choice. It's fight or perish. You just have to think like, if you do one procedure, it could like affect since she had so many problems, it could affect like the other parts. Yeah. Everything definitely works together. And yeah. yeah. And each time you do a procedure, there's other complications after her second procedure, she actually suffered a post-operative stroke. And so we had to do recovery from that. Um, but today she's 27 and she was Miss Maine and everything. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Congrats. Wow. Yeah. That's <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then just to go over your surgery, pre, like um, overview a little bit. 
you said first um they were basically working on trying to connect the two chambers together so that it would um function together correct right and um after that they connected three vessels together is that correct yep you're yeah you're doing great okay <laughs> sorry and then um after that it was kind of reversing everything to um let the left ventricle grow on its own but then there was that fixed the circulatory problem but then there was still a valve problem so then the rest of the surgery sorry yes almost you almost have it you're doing great so the the because we couldn't get what normally would have brought the fourth vessel in because of risk factors then by chance her left ventricle grew and then they were able to take everything down, but the valves, yes, were still abnormal. Okay. And then the rest of the procedures were just centered around um, trying to fix her left valve, correct? Trying to fix um, her mitral valve and her tricuspid valve and other complications that came up, you know, such as scar tissue from the other procedures and things like that. Wow. So um, thank you for talking about your all the kind of background of mm -hmm. modern surgeries and disease and everything. So, I mean, I feel like we've already talked a lot about, you know, like the kind of medical facts that, you know, that a lot of people might not know. And again, we don't know much about cardiovascular health. So is there any other kind of like things that you've learned along the way that an average person might not know about the heart just like because as I can see like even now when you were talking about it you were just naming all these terms that I feel like people usually won't know so I can see that you really did spend a lot of time doing research as your daughter had these you know well the the thing about that is is what's really nice is when we first started out you know, I was actually a nursing student originally, and so I had a little bit of an understanding about the basics of the heart and the hemodynamics and how things sort of work together, but I got a crash course. And so that's why I said, I'm like, you guys are doing great. It didn't, I didn't just pick all this up right away. You know, we had to live it and it took a long time to kind of gain an understanding. But the thing that I will credit for that is Faith's cardiology, my daughter, her cardiology team was phenomenal and they were educators. And I actually wrote about this little scene that I remember vividly in my book when they sat down with me and we were knee to knee and they came with their clipboard and they drew pictures and they drew diagrams and they sat with me until I understood everything that they were talking about. And so I truly credit them for being able to kind of provide me with the details and the skill to do that. And I think for anybody who's experiencing any kind of medical situation, you know, it's, it's a learning process, but it's okay to ask questions. And the one thing that I say that people know is, you know, your own body or for people who have children, they know their children better than anybody. And so when you add to that, okay, here's the medical language in a way that's, that's a, that's just a, a way to communicate what's going on in the heart. You know, they're the words we have, they're the understanding we have, but it's really just, it is a language and it's a way to say, look, we've got this problem. Here's what's going on. And so 
I think that's the only thing I would say is different is you become so familiar with that language because that language is like a second language. It's like your lifeline. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel like a lot, most parents who, or just people who come out um, of very complicated diseases come out almost like a doctor knowing that much information about the topic. So that's great. Yeah. You wear a lot of hats. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then also kind of what were, so I know you said when your daughter came home to you as a newborn, right, you kind of saw mm -hmm. like that there were issues and you were going back and forth to the hospital. What were those like symptoms or causes or, you know, symptoms or things that you saw that were abnormal in her that caused you to kind of see what's going on? So there were things that I saw that were abnormal. And then there were things as well that were like, hindsight's 2020, 20, right? That were after the fact that you could look back and go, oh my goodness, that was a clue that I maybe didn't notice, but I did notice these other things. And so um, a couple of the things that I would notice and have her back and forth for was she breathed really heavy and she had what you would, what is again in the medical world called this retractions. And so her ribs when she would breathe, would kind of pull the skin in very tightly in them. And it's because she was breathing so hard and she threw up a lot. It was very hard for her to keep food down. And she was sweaty all the time because her body was working so hard. So every, just, just existing was like a marathon workout for her. Her heart was just constantly fighting. And so, so she was sweaty. She was, you know, if I'd kiss her, even like her forehead, it would always taste like salt on my lips, you know, because of the sweat and that sort of thing. And then in hindsight, one of the other things that was noticeable, um, and again, I, you know, the doctors didn't pick up on it, but times were different. They didn't have the same measurement tools that we do now. So this yeah. was newer back then, but when a baby's born, you've probably heard they have a, a soft spot on the top of their forehead and that soft spot's called a fontanelle. And when there's too much fluid on the baby, for different reasons, sometimes there's brain conditions that can cause that. But when there's too much fluid because of heart failure, that fontanelle is not soft and flat to the skull necessarily. It can be puffy or kind of bulging a little bit. And so this soft spot on the top of her head we wouldn't have known it didn't look odd or anything, but to touch, you could feel that's not flat to the skull. And so those were things that we sort of noticed. She was very modely and she was fussy, but you know, the doctors kind of thought, ah, she probably has colic, you know, she doesn't keep her food down, you know, she got yeah. upset belly or. So what was the cause of her throwing up? Like, what does that have to do with the heart? So um, with heart failure, it's actually very common that it can affect appetite and um, it can make you very nauseous and um, the two go hand in hand. And I don't know the exact reasoning behind it, like biologically or physically, but it's just a, you know, it's, it's a sign. It's a symptom of heart failure as poor ap decreased appetite and um, vomiting. Obviously online, like or not even online, just like in general. So you mm -hmm. just have like a few like list of symptoms so that yep. patients can figure out, right? Um, but like, was there anything in your daughter's case that like sh 
maybe she didn't have one of those symptoms or she had an extra symptom that wasn't part of that list that you think could do. Um, I think that the big thing was, was she definitely had all the symptoms of congestive heart failure. Um, but back then there was no internet. <laughs> that <Yeah>. age is me. <laughs> there was no looking up online to try yeah. to find that information. And that was part of, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge blessing to like today's world is being able to have the internet to, ex- to access information because not only could I not look things up and access information, you know, like there wasn't anything in encyclopedias really about it. You know, you really yeah. had to search, but there, and I can't say there was no internet, but there was not internet the way that you know it now. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah. And her doctors, you know, they just, it was all new to them as well, you know? Yeah. I know some, in some cases when uh, there are like, when parents go to the doctors about their kids' conditions, I feel like sometimes even I've seen stories where the doctors learn new things about the disease because of Mm -hmm. the experiences that their patients are going through. So do you think that was with your case that doctors learn new things about that disease when your daughter was experiencing it? I think that's probably happened all throughout her life, actually, you know, there's, it's a constant learning process. And the thing about these chronic illnesses is your doctors become your team and you are a team together. And we all hold part of the corner of the blanket that's being held up. And so we're constantly learning from one another and, you know, for faith in specific, one thing that's different about her is usually a lot of kids like this, they, they maybe have three surgeries, possibly four, five at the most, but for somebody to have eight heart surgeries over the course of your life, you know, we're talking instance, infancy, toddler, elementary school, middle school, high school, adult. And so at every stage of the game, she's had some sort of cardiac procedure through that, you learn, ah, you know, little things like you can't mix this medication with this medication in the same line because it causes A, B, or C. You know, there's all kinds of just details. The details are like, they're unbelievable. I mean, I probably, it's, I probably hold like a medical file this big, <laughs> you know, it's just here. <laughs> so, and so, and what's interesting about that is, is, I mean, you, are you guys, you guys are familiar with the fight flight response? Yeah. You, yes. So if you're faced with an intense situation or a trauma or something that like a car accident, something that can make you panic, then your body responds with fight flight, which changes the place of your mind that's actually responding to what's happening. So instead of your, your frontal lobe kind of handling your thought process, something switches and it's handled in a different part of your brain. And so, so when you're present in and amongst these life and death situations and everything's this urgent, um, you know, you're, you're, you're at bedside, one crisis is happening after another, you know, she's had to have CPR before, you know, there's, all these, it's like scenes from Grey's Anatomy, you know, and they're that dramatic, you know? And so your mind is taking in these details with wide pupils, as I say, because that's the fight flight response and you store it all in this retrievable way. And it's really, I I don't know, it's a remarkable thing that the mind can do that. 
But when you're working with your team, you can still pull out these pieces of information that they need to know. One thing that has come up a lot sometimes is, you know, if I know some, like from the patient point of view, if I know something as a patient's mom and I don't get a normal team member who's been part from the beginning, who we have a rapport with, they may more easily dismiss my thought because they don't have the whole history, but if they do, they usually learn very quickly. Oh, I need to listen to mom, you know? Yeah. And- Cause you said like your doctors are like your team. So um, if you, if you kind of had like differing opinions, like if the doctor thought maybe one, they thought like one thing was better for your daughter than like you did, how did you mm-hmm. kind of like handle that? We've run into that quite a few times, actually, (laughs) Um, even with the teams, you know, kind of back and forth or whatnot. And there's really, you know, I I don't know if I have a specific sense about how I handled it. You just kind of have to keep moving forward. It's it's like, a, I, I guess, I think what allowed me to handle that probably somewhat effectively is I'm a problem solver by nature. So I have a scientific mind and it's my tendency to say, all right, all this aside, let's get to the solution. And so I think that was helpful because I can tell you, like, there was one point when my daughter had her very first surgery and she was in the hospital for a really long time. And she was, she'd had the first procedure and it, you know, when I, when they were done and they came out and told me, you know, it's nine hours later, she's been in the OR for nine hours and they say, you know, we did it, but she's not out of the woods. And so I sat by her bedside while she's connected to all these tubes and wires and a million different things that are keeping her alive. And, and myself, I'm thinking, oh, should I have done this? You know, she looks worse than she did before. Um, And you're kind of waiting and you're hoping and you're hanging on thinking, gosh, you know, it's got to work. It has to work. And so on day four, she crashed. And when I walked around the corner, I had a team of doctors arguing over her bed. And one doctor was saying, we need to get her back into the OR. We need to now, or she's not going to make it. And the other doctor was saying, we need, she's not going to make it through another surgery. She's too weak. We need to get her on the transplant list. And then the other doctor was saying, we don't have time to put her on a transplant list. She'll never make it that long. We don't even know if we'll get a heart. And so- in two split seconds, you have to make the decision about what you're going to do. And you're looking at your child and she's, she's blue and she's crashing and you can see all the numbers on the screen and you know that it's not going well and you have no choice. And you you just, again, for me, it was like, all right, we need to make a decision. And so you make the decision. And, And the thing is doctors recommend. And so you guys have, you know, as a doctor, as somebody in that field, like you have responsibilities and all kinds of pressures in one way, but that ultimate decision-making that pressure resides with the parent. And so if the partners or the team members aren't agreeing, sometimes it's almost a benefit because you get to hear both thought processes, which allows you to make a better decision, I think, but Okay. And I'm just curious, but in that situation, like that you said, your doctor, like the doctors were fighting over, um, which just, which like choice did you ultimately decide? We went for surgery. Yeah. Oh, for surgery. So, yep. Yeah. And, and knowing, looking back, it was definitely the best choice. 
Hey guys, it's Josh V, and we decided to make this interview a two-parter because it was really long. Um, we hoped you enjoyed the first part of this interview just as much as we did. We really enjoyed listening to Ms. Muscatel's story, and we hope that you did too. Stay tuned for the second part to hear like about the rest of her journey, um, and this episode will probably be posted in the next two weeks. So this episode's charity is called Sisters by Heart. And Sisters by Heart is a nonprofit that works specifically for children with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. They work to make these children's hospital lives so much better by organizing care packages and connecting afflicted children all over the nation to support each other. Um, this organization has helped so many families deal with this disease by creating a supportive community with people all around the nation. Um, and sorry, if you guys didn't know, hypoplastic left heart syndrome is the disorder that Miss Muscatel's daughter, daughter had. Um, so there are so many ways that you can help out um, this organization by hosting a fundraiser, maybe donating funds to the organization, just a lot more things you can do. I can link the website in the description of the episode in case you guys want to look into it. And I highly encourage you to do so because um, after listening to Ms. Muscatel's daughter's journey, I think it's really important that we um, that we support these nonprofits that help to make these children's lives better. Um, and just as usual, make sure you follow us on Instagram to get updates when we post new episodes and special episodes that we may be doing. And so with that out of the way, I'll see you guys in the next episode. And I'm going to be saying this by myself today, but medics off the mic.